Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and this is New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. And today's episode is in conversation with Laura Olson, who co-authored with Svetlana Donieva a fascinating book called The Worlds of Russian Village Women, Tradition, Transgression, Compromise. This is a study of three generations of Russian village women, and it makes one reconsider our understanding of gender and the role of women in Russian culture. So, I'm really looking forward to what Laura has to say about her and Svetlana's book. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. And I'm thrilled to have a chance today to be talking to Laura Olson-Osterman. Hi, Laura. Hi. How are you doing today? Pretty good, thanks. So, uh, today we are going to be talking about a book called The Walls of Russian Village Woman, Tradition, Transgression, Compromise by Laura Olsen-Osterman and Svetlana Adonieva. So, Laura, it's usually very interesting to find out how people got to be doing what they are doing now. So perhaps you could tell us about your story in Russian studies? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, as a young child, I loved foreign languages. And um, I grew up in a suburb of New York City, and we had a neighbor... Um, actually, when we were on vacation in Vermont, uh, there was a neighbor who was a Russian man and he had a husky dog and he spoke to the dog in Russian. And that was my the first Russian that I met. And I didn't really meet him. I just observed him like a child does, you know, and uh, that made an impression on me. And then um, later on in high school, I had a chance to uh, study Russian. My My French teacher was a a uh, Russian immigrant from, she was a Jewish immigrant from uh, somewhere in probably what's now Poland. And um, she, uh, she also, she taught French and she also taught Russian. And so I signed up with Russian, uh, with her for Russian. And uh, she taught me to speak uh, for some reason with uh, a, a very different accent than is usually taught in <laughs> Um, English schools or American uh, schools. And so I had to relearn Russian when I attended college. But um, I just caught I think I caught the bug, you know, pretty early. And, um, you know, as many times in my life as I've said to myself, uh, why am I studying this? Why didn't I choose like uh, French cheese making or something? It uh, it just has really stuck with me. So cheese making, would you like to talk a little bit more about this? Is this well, a hobby of yours? Yeah, no, it isn't. But all, all I meant by that was um, sometimes when you're doing <clears throat> field work in Russia, um, especially if you're in there in the winter, um, especially in times when um, uh, there was more difficulty to obtain uh, good food and that kind of thing, I, I would fantasize about why I chose this uh, particular um, place in the world to uh, focus my energies. 
Yeah, I guess and, this is and, not uncommon for Slavic scholars, especially so. during winters. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, and and sometimes village life is like that too. But you know, village life really draws you in with all the social interaction, uh, and that's probably what drew me to um, studying uh, Russian village culture was that when I first started um, going to Russian villages. Uh, the people were so uh, open and so um, uh, willing to share their lives, uh, share the time the time that it takes to tell stories. And this made a huge impression on me. And so I think that really influenced my future study of Russian culture. So I think you mentioned somewhere in your book that um, there is a 10-year-long story of fieldwork behind it. Yes, and how that started, um, I have a strong interest in uh, folk singing, and I got this from my mother, who was um, in a folk singing group in uh, Larchmont, New York, that would sing like for old people's homes, and you know, with guitars and tambourines and that kind of thing. 1960s kind of Pete Seeger um, folk uh, revival, and I would go along sometimes and, you know, learn, I learned all their songs and um, I was a good singer. I loved singing and, you know, I always sang in uh, classical choirs, but um, when I found Russian folk music, I felt like I had really uh, found what I wanted to do musically. And so uh, part of what I did, what drew me into studying Russian village culture um was uh, the music, and that's where the field work started. Uh, when I first uh, started researching Russian folk music, it was not possible to go to a village. In 1998, um, not 98, in 1989, uh, when I first went to Eastern Europe to study folk music, um, I studied through the auspices of uh, the Dmitry Pokrovsky Ensemble. And we had met Dmitry Pokrovsky when they were on tour in the United States. And um, I just loved their music and their sound and wanted to, you know, sort of apprentice myself to them and become, uh, you know, familiar with really what they did and their practice and their their. Uh, their field work as well, because they were uh, a folk ensemble that did uh, their own field work in Russian villages to to get their own repertoire. It's repertoire, but to kind of get the sound, to get the the physical aspect of Russian folk singing. And uh, I wrote about the whole phenomenon around the Pokrovsky ensemble. Uh, that book is called Performing Russia. And uh, at the time that I did that research, which was in 1989, 90, um, it was really hard to go out to a Russian village. Like I had one ethnomusicologist say she could take me, like if we were willing to just kind of get on a train and go. <clears throat> and uh, we, we, uh, I was with two other women from the Yale Slavic Corps. Um, we, we didn't want to do it, and those. Conditions. We wanted to be have you know full permission to go and and all of that. Uh, so it wasn't until '95 that I made my first trip to a Russian village, and that was again through an ethnomusicologist. Her name is Natalia Gilyarova, and I wrote about her in my first book. 
And um, so I observed her method of working with uh, informants in the village. And I met some of my very first informants and some of the main informants of uh, the my second book, The World's uh, Russian Village Women, through Natalia Gilyarova. Um, and so um, that was the start of the folk uh, of the uh, field research. Oh, that's and a very interesting segue into Russian culture. It, it is, yeah. And I remember at the time I was on an ACTR, an American Council of Teachers of Russian um, language program. And um, it was when, when Gilyarova said to me, uh, I, I can take you out to a village. I, I told my Russian teacher, you know, I'd have to miss a few days of class. Would it be okay? And she was like, oh, my God, yes, you're going to learn so much more there than you could in a classroom. And she was so right. I mean, I was like, you know, it just sort of changed my life. And it was there that I heard, first heard the stories of uh, Valentina uh, Sergeyevna, who is one of the informants that is featured throughout the book, but um, yes. especially in the uh, witchcraft chapter, chapter seven. And she told there one of the main stories, uh, which I didn't understand when she told it, but later on, the other people that I was with on this little fieldwork expedition told me what she had been saying, because people tell stories in a, a way that it, even if you understand the words they're saying, you don't understand what's going on. So uh, it was a whole language that I had to learn. And basically... Um, what, what the story that she told there was that uh, another woman in the ensemble, in her little folk ensemble inside this village, um, the ensemble that Gilyarova, the, the ethnomusicologist, studies, um, had put a spell on her, Valentina, so that Valentina would get hoarse, and so she wouldn't be able to sing when Gilyarova was there to make a recording of their singing group. So this was, <laughs> and I thought, how interesting, because Valentina is a nurse, and she yet believes that um, a cold can be given to someone through witchcraft, like not through, you know, germs, but through witchcraft. So, uh, so that just started the beginning of my interest in this, and my knowledge, even, I didn't know that... Um, such stories were told in villages, and I didn't know what they were called. And so that really started me to learn what they're called and and to to um, pay attention to these stories and see how I could elicit more stories like that. And it turns out you don't really need to elicit them. You just need to kind of be there and listen to elder women talk, and eventually these stories float up all by themselves. Um, that's incredibly interesting. And while we are on this, um, I had another question I wanted to ask you. So you mentioned in the introduction that one of the difficulties of doing research in a village is that you have to overcome various misunderstandings between the researcher and the village woman. So what other kind of misunderstandings do you mean? Oh my gosh, just so many. I mean, when I went to, um, so this was the idea of uh, Svilana Adonive, my co-author. And, um, you know, she kind of, you know, just mentioned this to me. And when when she mentioned it to me, I, and then we wrote about it, I started going back through my, tra not my transcripts, but literally my tapes and listening to see if 
there really were misunderstandings and I found them everywhere. Um, for example, just like laughing at the wrong place in the story of someone's telling the story and I'm, I'm laughing and it's not funny or, uh, you know, I'm expecting one outcome and um, the person is saying a different outcome. And so my questions are going in a different direction. I, I wrote about it in a, in a different article in a, in a collection on uh, oral history. I did like a, a close reading of one of my interviews with uh, one of my, another of my favorite women um, that I met in the village. And uh, I did like, I, I pulled out all of the misunderstandings and it wasn't, and I was surprised or maybe not surprised. I was maybe glad <laughs> to see it wasn't just my under misunderstandings, but also uh, I had a, um, a student with me, a Russian student who Svetlana arranged for me to do field work with. And she was having as many misunderstandings as I did. So I knew it wasn't that I didn't understand, you know, the culture or the language. I mean, it, it is because I don't understand the culture. Um, but it's it's more like there's a special uh, type of misunderstanding that happens when city people go to the village. And uh, it doesn't matter if you're American or Russian, you're still going to have that kind of cognitive dissonance when you encounter um, the culture of these, of the villagers. I see. I see. Well, as we are getting into more details, perhaps you could talk a little bit about the structure of your book and the main themes you've raised in this book. Yeah. So um, I have to say the book, uh, it started as my project and then um, Svetlana's Contribution came. Um, my my idea was to investigate the story of how um, the intellectuals of Russia had really inscribed Russian women into a um, particular story about Russian folklore and Russia's Russia's greatness um, as as Russia's culture draws on its folklore um, and um, the Russian women are the you know, keepers of this great, uh, rich, you know, kind of, uh, richness, but, um, they are also kind of uh, not perfect, not good keepers because, um, the way that they keep folklore is by just like transmitting it kind of in a rote way, not by, um, you know, really preserving the important aspects of the folklore or by uh, uh, taking it to its great heights of, of um, mastery. So, um, and I observed this uh, when I saw Giliarova working with um, the villagers. Uh, she was not interested in, oh, you know, 80% or so of the women's rep repertoire. She was interested in that, you know, 20% that, of songs that they can barely remember and that um, she, she finds, you know, like the eldest songs, the, the old wedding songs or the songs that having to do with the um, uh, folk calendar, the agricultural calendar. That was what was interesting to Guillermo and all the other songs that they knew she didn't turn on her tape recorder or if they started singing like that, they would, she would turn it off. 
Um, she would also criticize how they were singing as well. And so I sat through many sessions like this and I thought, somebody has to write about this. So I'm going, you know, I feel very passionate that what the women have in their repertoire is of interest, just intrinsically. Like I'm interested in the people and what, how they view their folklore, not in some great folklore with a capital F that has to be preserved for the reasons that the scholars dictate. And so this was the impetus behind the book. And I, I wrote about this in my first chapter of the book. And uh, this was not Svetlana's interest at all. She brought in uh, what came, became chapter two, which is the story of the um, life cycle of a woman and the different ways that uh, power is transmitted <clears throat> and possessed at different times in women's life, lives. So putting these two lines together, I think we really um, enriched each other's uh, study. And also she had not had the idea to focus on women. Um, that was also my contribution. So um, the book shaped itself as a dialogue between these two threads in a way. Um, and so uh, I have to say, when I assign the book to my students, I often skip chapter one because, you know, it's like more, you know, more technical, like you have to know more and you have to pay care about historiography or, or scholarship. Um, uh, and and yet chapter two is what everybody is interested in. So I, I assign chapter two to my students. Um and and but I think chapter one is really key for me. Like it, it's kind of the backstory and the reason why the book exists. Um, and and then so chapter two and then that influenced chapter two influenced the structure of the book. So um, once we started talking about different stages of a woman's life, then we we needed to follow up on that. And I was trying to write the book without chapter three, which is the wedding chapter. And I just realized it has to be there. I mean, this is the moment in women's lives. And it's the one moment that they all want to talk about that. And, and it, it wasn't in my list of topics in my in my fieldwork. But yet every single interview had that in it. Like every time we, you know, turned on a tape recorder to talk with a woman, um, she always wanted to talk about her wedding. So I had plenty of wedding material, um, and Svetlana also provided wedding material. And uh, although her material was more like descriptions of actual weddings, you know, she was her her she belongs to an institution, State University, <clears throat> which um, you know carried on the traditions of previous scholars, and they were always interested in the ritual. Right. Not the individuals who underwent the ritual, but the ritual itself. So all of those interviews were structured in such a way that they would elicit descriptions of a generic wedding. And our, our interest in the book is more like how did the individuals see their own weddings and their own um, uh, relationship to their weddings? So um, that very much, I think. Uh, influenced the book and became um, a huge thread in the book was this idea of subjectivity and how people see have their consciousness of 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 their <clears throat> of themselves. Um, and then then the rest of the book um, you know picks up that 
thread and and traces it to different folklore genres and also different moments in women's lives. So one very interesting moment you talk about is um, the influence of Soviet state on traditional rural life of women. So perhaps you could talk a little bit more about this. <clears throat> the influence of the Soviet state. Do you have in mind? Um, so you say that the coming of the Soviet power changed the traditional uh, rural set setting of lifestyle for women. So in what ways did it do so? Oh, yes. Hello. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm here. Yeah, so um, really that describing uh, uh, collectivization and the changes that happened with collectivization in uh, the late 1920s, in 1929 to 30. And um, so the ways that that affected women was that, first of all, it uh, made women more important in um, the family life uh, and it made men more peripheral to family life um, and um, women became uh, heads of household in more ways than one whereas previously they had a more limited authority uh, and at this point um, their daughters also became more empowered and treated as um, heads of household themselves so that there was a lot of challenge to the uh, Balshuka role. Uh, since the daughters were more empowered um, by the state, recognizing their authority as mothers, in other words, every mother is treated in a sense as um, a, an authority in the family, um, that that is a challenge to the institution of the balshuka so that uh and the balshuka is the female head of family by definition though um uh under the family structure of the 19th century prior to collectivization um a balshuka is she who is married to a male head of family but it, that becomes different in the soviet period where um any mother is treated as uh, a uh, familial authority. So I was really interested in this figure of Balshuka. So do I understand correctly that this is the most empowered woman in the family? Absolutely, yes. And uh, what does it make her the most empowered? So what other things can she do compared to other female family members, for example? Well, the Balshuka keeps, you know, the keys to the the larder, so to speak, right? She uh, she feeds the family, she clothes them, uh, she's in charge of the family uh, vegetable uh, plot, the little vegetable growing plot, um, and any any domestic animals there. So. Um, it is to her credit if the family is um, well-fed, healthy, and has good morals. And uh, by extension, then it is also to the credit of the entire family. Um, but it is her job, really, to make sure those things happen. 
in other words, that they're well clothed and well fed um, and healthy looking and, and behave properly. Um, and, um, you know, really her husband is backing her up in that, and, but it's her direct responsibility. So were it mainly Balshohas that you had a chance to speak with during your field work? Well, as I came to learn later on, everybody that we talked to pretty much was a Balshuha. Um, because if you, um, you know, wander around uh, and look in a, in a Russian village today, you're going to see a lot of women-headed uh, families. And often it will be an older women woman. Um, rarely you will see a family there where there's a younger woman in charge and the older woman is um, incapacitated in some way or she's um, her authority is diminished. Um, so a lot of times you'll see, uh, you'll just meet those women. And that's, that's who stays in the village year round. And then um, in the summer, the younger people come. So in the summer, you can see more of the in interactions between generations. But in the wintertime, you're going to see Balshuki uh, Staruhi, I call them. <laughs> they're both, you know, they're old, but yet they are heads of, of families. And often there is no man present at all, uh, no functioning man. If he's there, he's his authority is significantly diminished either um, because he is absenting himself, uh, and this is the, the pattern that we, we talk about in the book, or because he is uh, uh, drunk or infirm or, you know, one of those many different options. And then occasionally you meet uh, a, fa a family who is headed by a functioning man, a balshak, and that would be the exception today to see that in a village. So could you probably tell a little bit more about the pattern of a man absenting himself? Because that sounds very curious. Yes. Well, I mean, it, we trace it back to collectivization, which literally takes away, you know, a third of the men, uh, the, the successful male householders out of the village. Um, and then, um, you know, also involves uh, their sons or the, those men who uh, remain behind in the village in the collective farming so that the household is less of a responsibility for the man. It's more his responsibility to be um, involved in the public sphere, in, in the collective farm or the um, local governance or whatever field he ends up being in. Um, and whereas the woman will take charge of the household and the family, whereas previously that was shared. And so um, that pattern remained uh, in the Soviet period. Um, and uh, you see the results of it in a lot of uh, families that are headed by women nowadays. Very interesting. And perhaps this could be a good time to talk about gender since this is such an important concept in your book. And uh, could you tell us a little bit more about how you understand gender within your theoretical framework and how you work with the category of gender in your book? Yes. So, I mean, we don't have a very um, complex understanding of gender. We're understanding it as 
uh, a, you know, a socially constructed um, uh, set of, you know, kind of scripts or expectations uh, for people who, who have, you know, taken on the, uh, those roles of particular genders. And we don't talk much about those who don't uh, take on their uh, more obvious gender roles. So again, that we talk in the conclusion about like uh, silences in the book, that, that is one of the silences that I didn't even mention in the book um, is there are people, you meet people in the village who are going against their assigned gender roles. But, um, but we talk more about those who have, uh, you know, really embraced those uh, gender roles that are prescribed by, uh, by the community and uh, by tradition. And um, so uh, that's what we're looking at there and the process by which people uh, while accepting such a designation, like I am a woman may take other, you know, detours, let's say, uh, like, um, I don't know, a woman who no longer, uh, milks the cow and, uh, her husband has to milk the cow instead. Uh, she doesn't view herself as less of a woman because, you know, she just, she explains it as like, my husband is helping me. It's still uh, a female task. And uh, I think we mentioned in the book, like the husband will put on a kerchief while he's doing it to say like, oh, you know, the cow won't recognize me unless I put on a kerchief. But it also means that he's, he's acknowledging and marking that as a woman's task. It has to be done by a woman. Of course, the cow could get used to somebody without a kerchief, but no, he keeps doing it, even though he's been doing it for, you know, four years or five years. He's still wearing that kerchief. And uh, something you say is that um, in your book, you also undertake the enterprise of studying gender through plots and scripts. So what do you mean by this? Well, we mean that as we got deeper and deeper into our subject, we realized that a lot of these um, expectations that we're talking about, or, or all of them, are, you know, not only are they conveyed through stories, but they are solidified through stories. They are, they're in a sense, held up by stories. And um, so the, the scripts that come about in the stories, that come, to come across in the stories, and um, are very important to to people. And what we mean by that is um, the plots are the the stories that are told about the past that are formative for um, for for people's lives, and that are kind of can be um, designated as a kind of uh, no. Um, and the the scripts are those that the stories that are told about a future uh, way of being like when people imagine how they would like to be in their lives um, that we, we call that a script. And so these plots and scripts can be heard all the time. Like when people tell uh, stories about their wedding, for example, they're often telling uh, a plot of types of wed uh, weddings or types of courtship that occur. 
And um, as the more stories are told, the more those stories influence other stories and they become set conventional ways of thinking about this process of, um, you know, of a couple becoming a couple, right? So it's, it's almost impossible to make sense out of our lives unless we have models of how to make sense out of our lives. And that's what plots and scripts are. They're just the ways that people make sense of their lives. I see. I see. Um, something you also mention, um, and I'm quoting from your book right now, is that the social power of Russian rural women is a force that supports both individuals and social bonds. So that is very interesting. Could you please elaborate on this uh, power uh, which supports individuals and social bonds? Yes, uh, I think uh, what we're saying there is that very clearly um, a lot of these stories that people tell are designed to increase their social power so increase their social influence, their um, their ability to to be a leader in the community, to get others to follow them, to um, um, uh, just to to uh, um, have authority in the community, and um, so this kind of power is the social power that I'm referring to there. And uh, so that power is is a force that is going to support people as individuals in the, as they make their their way through life and decide how they want to uh, work their lives out. But it also helps uh, in social bonds. Um, it we see women as having both individual agency and a kind of agency that is really linked with other people. And so, and women's stories always bring us back to that. Like we can never make an argument that, you know, a, a Russian rural woman is, is, you know, I don't know, a feminist or something like that. Who's going to, you know, structure her life in a certain way. Um, Uh, keeping in mind her own specific needs. She's always going to take into account the needs of others, at least in the generations we worked with. Um, so um, that reference to the social bonds and the, the social power, the, the, the need to draw upon a community of others is so present. Um, it just, It never let us forget, their stories never let us forget that, that they were doing things um, for the good of others, whether that those others are their, their neighbors or they could be their ancestors, you know, always thinking about their ancestors and how to make things better for those who've gone already. Um, it really struck us. Uh, and um, I think that that's one of the themes that comes about strongly in the book that it, as women, um, you know, go about their lives, they are always thinking about the ancestors, always thinking about um, their debt in a sense to those uh, other important others who made their lives possible. 
So the three key words which you have in the title of your book are tradition, transgression, and compromise. And I understand that the transgression across times is something you were just talking about. And how about the compromise? So in what way compromise is a part of Russian village women? Well, almost everything is a compromise. So we, uh, every, every individual story involves compromises. We look at how uh, Russian rural women uh, grapple with the, the demands of tradition. And the tradition, you know, claims its own. Like, you know, it, it might say, um, you know, you're going to conduct your marriage in such and such a way, or you're going to conduct your wedding in such and such a way, or you're going to, you know, sing these songs after, you know, your mother passes away, or you're going to, you know, set everything aside and, and do this for your children. Um, and so all of these, you know, kind of cultural imperatives, um, they are, are constantly influencing people. And I'm um, oh, sorry, I lost the thread. What were you asking me? I, I was asking about compromise and oh, compromise. women's life. Yeah. And so and so they're constantly needing to uh, respond to those imperatives. And nobody's, you know, kind of meet those demands perfectly. Uh, everybody's going to make compromises along the way. And those compromises could be, you know, to, to suit her own needs. Like we talk about the most simple compromise, like a woman whose hair is curly and short, and but her, she needs to have her tresses combed out in the Russian traditional wedding, you know? So, um, that's a compromise, like a very physical compromise or, but it could be also a compromise, like a woman who we told about who has a friend, a neighbor who um, is in, in pain uh, and uh, commits suicide and, um, and then she covers it up. You know, she, uh, she she doesn't she makes sure that the woman is buried in the regular way and has a service set over her in a in a certain way that is specific for people who didn't commit suicide and so that was a, a kind of a compromise that she committed in her life and she carried the guilt of that throughout her life although you know her the woman came to her in a dream and thanked her so she knew she'd done the right thing uh, but still it was, it gnawed at her that this was a, uh, a kind of a, a moral compromise that she had to make. And in the light of these cases, how do you think your book fits, you know, within the framework of feminist scholarship on contemporary Russia? Well, we tried to take a, a slightly different tack than the one that I was bought, brought up with. You know, I'm, I was brought up with uh, second generation feminism that, you know, was pretty strident and um, not very sensitive to um, multicultural contexts and, you know, kind of said like, you know, women need to fight and, you know, get these equalities that they are are due. And I, I believe that in my own life, but I don't force it on anyone else. So I, um, 
and the kind of scholarship that so so in this case I don't force it on these on these women because uh, the women themselves don't see themselves as feminists. I, I I don't see them as feminists either, but I see them as strong role models for other women um, and w- role models that are applicable not just for village women but for any woman. I mean these these women have. Um, enormous uh, reserves of um, knowledge and strength and uh, ability. And, and that is just awe inspiring. So in a way it's celebrating that, um, but it's also trying to understand all the different compromises that they had to undergo in their lives, uh, including, you know, a lot of sexism and a lot of um, expectations on them that they couldn't possibly fulfill, you know, like after World War II, the expectation that, you know, women would, um, would maintain, uh, you know, monogamous marriages with, uh, with men and have children in wedlock. I mean, just it wasn't practical. So a lot of women had children out of wedlock and, you know, that, that was just a, a, a cultural phenomenon um, they they dealt with and they dealt with it each in their own way. So there's no, <clears throat> in a sense, there's no generalizing about it, but in, in another sense, yes, we can say that everybody um, grappled with uh, many different societal expectations and uh, many difficulties along the way. And so just uh, looking at the way that they did that, I think is our, contribution and whether that's a feminist contribution or not I mean I think it is but (laughs) it's certainly not a second generation feminist view I I think well feminism can be understood in many different ways right exactly right and and you know third generation feminism is a softer feminism that says like let's let's acknowledge that there's many cultural different ways of of understanding uh feminism and even I mean, I would argue in the Russian case, you almost need to get rid of the word feminist because the word is so tainted. It needs to be put aside and, and like, let's just have a talk about, you know, about women. So that in a way, that's what we did was just we're going to talk about women. <laughs> well, I'm so tempted right now to take this conversation to a completely different direction on feminism. But I really want to stick to your book. And you know, okay. there are many cases, some very anecdotal, which you describe in your book. And I was wondering if you could share something very memorable from your fieldwork. Oh, yes. Um, let me think. I mean, okay, so everybody who works, who does ethnography in a Russian village will have a story of a grandma who they particularly got along with, who influenced them a lot. The babushka. Babushka, yeah. And uh, such a one was this uh, woman I've already mentioned, Valentina. And... um, so a memorable case is, uh, you know, she was memorable, <laughs> just, just she herself. Um, but um, maybe the, the time that, you know, her, I was, I was there at the same time as her grandson. Uh, so her daughter had died uh, and I was more or less the same age as her daughter. So here I was in a way of fu- fulfilling a certain function for her. 
Her daughter had died a year ago. I showed up in the village and she, she seemed to appreciate my presence. And so that little bond that was formed there and she called me Karlovna because my, my dad's name is Carl. And they asked me at some point, the women, what my patronymic was. So I made up this Karlovna. And so she started calling me Karlovna, which is kind of a, an honor, you know, to be, because they will use that to call each other, the Balshuki, right? So she calls me Karlovna. Um, at the same time, her grandson is there and he uh, is very unhappy that I am there, pretty clearly. Now, anytime I'm in the room with her, he will not come near. Uh, he pretty much just comes to the house to sleep uh, at night. Um, she feeds him in a separate room. Um, and then uh, Easter came and we had to go to mass. Or we all, you know, we wanted to go to mass and um, she was relying on him to drive her. And he kept her waiting and I was with her, kept us waiting and kept us waiting. And we're standing out on the side of the road. It's cold. It's dark. It's like 11 o'clock. Uh, you know, in like, uh, I don't know, March or February, it's cold out and he doesn't show up. He doesn't show up. He doesn't show up. And finally he shows up and he's either angry or drunk. We don't know which. Or both. Or both. And I had to decide whether to get in the car. And I'm thinking, well, it's not very far. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I got in the car and she gets in the front and, I, and I'm in the back. And I think one other neighbor is there in the back, too. And he starts speeding along this road. Luckily, it's a very straight road <laughs> to the church. <laughs> and he's speeding along the road and um, and she starts yelling at him. <laughs> and she's just like yelling at him and telling him to slow down. And honestly, I, my memory, I don't even remember if he slowed down, but I was just impressed that she, you know, told him off at that moment. And then uh, she had, she had him come pick her up later in the evening, or in the morning, I guess like two in the morning. And I made sure to get a ride with somebody else home. <laughs> but I, I was, I was struck by that. This grand grandson was so, um, was so, bitter and of course he had just lost his mother a year ago okay so you know he had many reasons to be bitter and maybe i was the reason for his bitterness i'll never know uh, yeah, but that but is a pretty memorable story it's a memorable yeah yeah well laura i think we've taken up a lot of your time now but before we finish i'd just like to ask you about your current work what is it that you're working at the moment uh, I am working on a project on uh, folk music and dance and also um, religious revival among uh, a minority group in Bulgaria. They're a Muslim minority called the Pomaks, and they live in southern Bulgaria. And I've been doing fieldwork there since, 19, or since 2012, so 2012, 2013, 2015, I went there for fieldwork trips and, um, and I'm, I've been writing articles and I'm now getting a book written on this subject and looking at how they are 
kind of uh, bringing their community to more of a sense of um, of consciousness of their of the very existence of their minority, uh, and uh, that they have the right to have their own distinct culture from from the Bulgarian culture from the mainstream culture. So it's, it draws on a lot of the themes that I've uh, studied before, such as revival and folk music and um, the functions of those things in the lives of people. And, and yet it applies it to a completely new context. Well, that sounds very exciting. And I wish you the best of luck with this new research. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, I appreciated the chance to talk about all this. It's so interesting to me. I hope you also enjoyed this interview with Laura Olson about the book she co-authored with Svetlana Adonyeva called The Worlds of Russian Village Women, Tradition, Transgression, Compromise. And we have more excited speakers who will be talking about their work in the forthcoming episodes of New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. So stay tuned and take care. <laughs>